Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello, everyone. My name is Nick, and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure, where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together... We can make a difference. to Verbal Diorama. I'm Em and I'm here to guide you on a deep dive of the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. Um, thank you to everyone for all the positive comments and feedback on Dread. It was my most downloaded episode at one point but it seems Titan AE has surpassed it in the last few days. Uh, Dread was absolutely a bit of a passion project for me to cover so I'm thrilled it's been so well received. And also let's talk a little bit about Captain Marvel because that episode kind of came out of the blue a little bit and slotted in between one and three, even though three was recorded before it. But, you know, sometimes that'll happen. Uh, consider it my gift to you, random minisodes on whatever tickles my fancy. Uh, since my last episode, I've also featured on Wulong Talks where we talked about Captain Marvel. I actually put on Twitter, I actually um, sort of came out and uh, and was honest about the fact that uh, Captain Marvel is the first movie I've seen twice at the cinema since Chicago in 2002. So yeah, I love that movie a lot um, and even more so on a second viewing. Um, and I have to say, I loved talking with Jason um, on Wulong Talks about Captain Marvel. It's my favourite movie so far this year. Uh, which, let's be honest, will probably change come the end of April. Uh, guesses on what movie that will be. Um, anyway, uh, Jason and his co-host Rich are super great. And I'm not just plugging them because I was on it. Um, they really are brilliant over at Wulong Talk, so I'd highly recommend them. As honestly, they have episodes covering everything. Um, speaking of guest appearances, I seem to have been super busy of late booking in more guest slots. Uh, it seems like my little stint on Wulong Talks hasn't put anyone off. Uh, which is great. Um, I previously mentioned I'm booked on Offscreen Babble, which is this month. Um, and actually, Sade from Offscreen Babble is now coming on to this show in May to talk about a movie that she loved from last year. Uh, I'm also hopefully going to be featuring on another British podcast with the guys on Sorry You're In My Seat. 
I previously featured on their sports movies episode um, as I wrote a piece on the greatest sports movie ever made, A League of Their Own. Um, And I've been chatting with Sam from the show recently and they have this vault where they'll put the greatest movies into and it's like a collective agreement. Um, Anyway, I tried to persuade Sam to get the other guys, James and Aaron, to agree to put Dread in their vault, but they said no. So my aim is to get a movie, any movie, into their vault. So I'm going on their show to do that. Um, They are tough cookies to crack, so I'm going in with the big guns, guys. Right. So welcome to episode four. I decided to take a bit of feedback yet again and put out a poll on Twitter asking about whether people want to know episode topics beforehand or not. And overwhelmingly, people said they want to know. So some time ago, I announced this episode would be on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and it's on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Um, additionally, this was always my plan, so get out the fanfare because I actually stuck to my guns on this one. Hurrah! There's always a rhyme or reason for me choosing a particular movie, and I always try to explain why. Uh, for Titan AE, it was purely because it was one of the biggest flops of all time, and I felt it deserved redemption. And for Dread, it was to showcase the passion of its fans and the fact there's no rhyme or reason when it comes to a movie succeeding or failing. Why did I pick Roger Rabbit? Well, it's because it's Roger Rabbit. It's one of the most beloved movies of my childhood, everyone's childhood pretty much, and I watched it all the time as a kid. I didn't understand most of the adult themes back then, but I loved it and it amazed me. And it still does to this day. We go to the movies to be taken to another place, a magical faraway land, and escape from our own realities. Where better to escape than to Toontown, where magic still exists, and even as adults you can look at this movie and still be blown away every damn time. For a movie over 30 years old, it's 31 this year, uh, it's incredible to even be blown away still by it. It's a typical film noir tale of conspiracy, political corruption, sex and suburban expansion um, of a private eye with his own demons set in a gritty alternative Los Angeles featuring a femme fatale, mobsters and a wide-eyed optimistic hero who's set up for a crime he didn't commit. Technologically, it's a marvel, but the fact it exists at all is a miracle. So let's see stars instead of tweeting birds and delve into Robert Zemeckis' 1988 classic, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? And guys, this is going to be a long one. So get comfortable. Mommy's going to the beauty parlor, darling. But I'm leaving you with your favorite friend, Roger. He's going to take very, very good care of you. Because if he doesn't, he's going back to the science lab. Excuse me, Please, Raul, I can give you stars. Just drop the refrigerator in my head. Whoa. 
one more time. Well, I got on your head 23 times already. I can take it. Don't worry about me. I'm not worried about you. I'm worried about the refrigerator. This is the tale of an up-and-coming movie star named Roger Rabbit and a down-and-out private detective and stay out. named Eddie Valiant. Booga booga. Every moment they were together ah! was a new adventure in trouble. Hide me, Eddie. Please. It's a motion picture about friendship. Sorry, I yanked your ears. All the time you yanked my ears? Murder. Marvin Acme. The rabbit cacked him last night. Remember, you never saw me. Sex. I'd do anything for my husband, Mr. Valiant. Anything. And violence. <laughs> Tunes. Gets him every time. You wouldn't have any idea where the rabbit might be? Got a thing for rabbits, huh? The whole thing stinks like yesterday's diapers. It's a comedy a little different from all the rest. Ah, I'm a pig! I'm a tomb! I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. But tell me, Eddie, is that a rabbit in your pocket or you're just happy to see me? Touchstone Pictures and Steven Spielberg present a Robert Zemeckis film. We tunes may act idiotic, but we're not stupid. Who framed Roger Rabbit? In 1947 Los Angeles, cranky private eye Eddie Valiant gets hired by cartoon producer R.K. Maroon to investigate an adultery scandal involving Jessica Rabbit, the sultry wife of Maroon's biggest star, Roger Rabbit, which he believes is the cause of Roger's recent run of poor performances on screen. But when Marvin Acme, Jessica's alleged lover and the owner of Toontown, is found murdered, all the evidence points to Roger. Toontown's Superior Court Judge, Judge Doom, vows to catch and destroy Roger with his creation, Dip, a mix of turpentine, acetone and benzene. Roger's co-star, Baby Herman, insists Roger is innocent and that Marvin Acme's missing will is the key to solving the murder. Eddie finds Roger, who professes his innocence and begs for help. Eddie agrees to hide Roger at his ex-girlfriend Dolores' bar. Jessica finds Eddie and confesses that she was forced to pose for patty cake photographs by Maroon so he could blackmail Acme. Dolores appears and reveals that if Marvin Acme's will isn't found by midnight, Cloverleaf will own Toontown. Judge Doom finds Dolores' bar and persuades Roger to emerge. Roger and Eddie escape with Benny, a toon cab, and hide in a movie theatre where Eddie finally opens up to Roger about the death of his brother to an unseen toon with a squeaky voice. As they leave the theatre, a newsreel plays detailing the sale of maroon cartoons to a mysterious company called Cloverleaf, the same company that also recently purchased the red car, the city's tram network, shortly before Marvin Acme's death. Eddie leaves Roger outside Maroon Cartoons as a lookout and confronts R.K. Maroon, who confesses he blackmailed Acme into selling his company so he can sell the studio, but is murdered before he can give any more information. Eddie sees Jessica flee the scene and follows her into Toontown. Jessica reveals that Doom killed Acme and Maroon, and that before he died, Acme gave her his will for safekeeping, but it was blank. The blank will then vanished. They're both captured by Judge Doom. At the Acme factory... Doom reveals his plan to destroy Toontown to build a freeway. Doom owns Cloverleaf and buying the red car was to encourage the public to back his freeway proposal. He plans to spray dip over Toontown and eradicate it. 
Roger appears and unsuccessfully attempts to save his wife, but is captured by Judge Doom, who's injured and leaves the factory floor. Eddie, up until this point, has been kind of mean, distracts Judge Doom's weasels by performing a comedic song and dance number, causing the weasels to die from laughter. Doom reappears and he and Eddie fight with a variety of acne products, culminating in Doom being flattened by a steamroller. He then emerges as being the tomb that killed Eddie's brother. Doom is eventually killed by his own dip and his remains are surveyed by the multitude of tunes from Toontown. It's established that Acme's will was actually the love letter Roger wrote to Jessica and Toontown is now owned by the Toons. Roger, yeah. that love letter you wrote to your wife in the Income Paint Club, why don't you read it to her now? Sure, Betty. Dear Jessica, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love Acme, a sound mind and body. It's the will! Do we hereby bequeath in perpetuity the property known as Toontown to those lovable characters, the Toons? <laughs> film stars Bob Hoskins as Eddie Valiant, uh, an antisocial alcoholic PI with a hatred for tunes after the death of his brother, Charles Fleischer as Roger Rabbit, an alias tune who's framed for a crime he didn't commit, Christopher Lloyd as Judge Doom, the sinister and conniving judge of Toontown's district court, and Joanna Cassidy as Dolores, uh, a waitress and on-off girlfriend of Eddie, who agrees to help him solve the case. Kathleen Turner was uncredited as Jessica Rabbit, Roger's overly attractive club singer wife. So let's talk a little, probably a lot actually, about the history of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Walt Disney purchased the rights to the original novel Who Censored Roger Rabbit by Gary K. Wolf, which was published in 1981. Walt Disney purchased the rights in the same year. The plot of the book is significantly different to the movie, but contains many of the same main characters. The novel's tone is darker Uh, It includes Roger's death and subsequently coming back to life as a doppelganger to solve his own murder. Um, With regards to the actual movie itself, the studio brought in Steven Spielberg to executively produce through his production company Amblin Entertainment alongside Frank Marshall and Kathleen Kennedy. I'm going to be mentioning Spielberg a lot on this episode, FYI. Um, He had just worked with Robert Zemeckis on Back to the Future and wanted him to direct Roger Rabbit. Uh, at the time, Zemeckis was a young director. His first two films were critical and commercial flops. His third was Romancing the Stone, which was a surprise success in 1984. The success of Romancing the Stone gave him the scope and gravitas needed to secure his next chosen project, which was Back to the Future, obviously another massive success in 1985. Based on this history, Spielberg chose him for Roger Rabbit and Disney agreed. It was the collective clout that was the name and reputation of Steven Spielberg that got Roger Rabbit made. The production was long and complicated, both from a technological point of view and also in terms of the licensing of the individual characters that were owned by other companies. Think of it like this. It'd be like Marvel and DC bringing all their characters together for a movie where Batman goes to the pub with Iron Man and Wonder Woman grabs lunch with Captain Marvel. Crossovers happen in comic books all the time, but take it from me right here, this will never happen. The whole Marvel and DC thing, it will never happen, ever. Not in a million months of Sundays. Marvel and DC would never do it. They'd never agree to it. It would cost too much money. Sure, it'd be the movie event of the millennium, but it it just will never happen. 
this movie is the 1988 equivalent of that. Um, there's less money at stake for sure, but the sheer volume of characters and the licensing rules this movie had to follow just to get them included. This movie is a miracle. Um, now that we have that settled, back to Spielberg, because he's really the MVP of this production. He negotiated with the studios for the rights to these classic animated characters. He dealt with Warner Brothers, Fleischer Studios, Felix the Cat Productions, Turner Entertainment and Universal Pictures. The agreement was to lend Roger Rabbit the characters at, get this, a mere $5,000 per character. Say what? $5,000 per character for the whole movie. No residuals, one-off, flat fee, purely based on Steven Spielberg's name and some goodwill. Spielberg is a guy who's in the media a fair bit at the moment on his comments about Netflix. But let's put this into perspective. He negotiated Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Betty Boop, Porky Pig, everyone for $5,000 each. And not only that, he also negotiated the equal screen time the likes of Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck would receive against Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. Famously, the scenes featuring these characters showed equal screen time and equal numbers of lines. The fact that Spielberg not only achieved this, but he did it purely based on his powers of persuasion, meant he was rewarded handsomely. His contract gave him unprecedented creative control of the movie and a large percentage of the box office. But it wasn't just Spielberg who was dealing with the careful negotiations with the studios. Roger Rabbit went seriously over budget. The movie was originally greenlit for $29.9 million, which at the time was the most expensive animated film ever. During the production, the costs escalated up to $40 million, and Michael Eisner, Disney's then president, almost shut it down. It was Spielberg and the then head of animation at Disney, one Mr. Jeffrey Katzenberg, who were instrumental at calming Eisner down and assuring him that this new method of animation and the hybrid live action would save Disney's ailing animation department. You've got to remember, at this time, Disney animation was really struggling. The Little Mermaid, which came out the following year, is now seen as the start of Disney's Renaissance period, something I touched on in the Titan AE episode. But during the long, expensive, tiring production of Roger Rabbit, nerves were frayed. And filming lasted seven months, with one additional month at Industrial Light and Magic, where the majority of the Toontown scenes were filmed against a blue screen. Bob Hoskins actually said that for many months after filming ended, he felt like he was seeing cartoon characters wherever he went. And he actually had a breakdown. An additional 14 months of post-production followed after that, where animators painstakingly rotoscoped all the live-action sequences. Not every scene in the movie shows a Toon character, but the majority do, and each animation cell was meticulously drawn on. Additionally, each shot required three lighting layers to be optically printed onto the animation to add dimensionality. This gave the tunes the same lighting as the live action, again adding to the idea that they existed in the same world. I've mentioned before my lament at the dying art of hand-drawn animation and the sheer skill, dedication and hard work these animators of these animators is just astonishing. The level of detail is phenomenal. They didn't have to add the lighting, they chose to make it look as real as possible. Some of the interactions between Toons and humans can be a little sketchy. Scenes at the start with Roger and Raoul, the director of his cartoon with Baby Herman, for example. It's clear they have some sort of string pulling Raoul's jacket. However, if you compare this to the scenes where Jessica sings and interacts with Eddie and Marvin Acme, where she slides her hand under Eddie's jacket and pinches Acme's cheeks... There's genuine physical contact there. 
which can only be achieved from a stand-in actress. The scenes where Roger, cuffed to Eddie, hides out at his apartment and the weasels pay a visit just pays homage to what a fantastic actor the late Bob Hoskins was. He makes you believe he's in a room hiding a cartoon rabbit whilst having a cartoon weasel pointing a gun at him. Overall, the actual look of the movie is somewhat incredible, even though it's 31 years old. So, I mentioned the source material is darker in tone. Well, the movie doesn't shy away from a similar tone either. There's dark elements, sexual innuendo, alcoholism, guns, violence, and probably the scariest villain you'll ever see in a Disney movie. A guy who'll happily dip an innocent cartoon shoe just to prove a point. And it was still PG-rated. Maybe Spielberg persuaded the MPAA on that as well. I'm just speculating here. I posted on social media about Judge Doom and it's safe to say that a lot of commenters had nightmares about him, including me. This is also where Spielberg's influence and control over the movie helped endlessly because without him we might have had something a bit more watered down. Spielberg backed Zemeckis on keeping the adult themes of the movie and they were both unwilling to change it. Again, something we would never see in the Disney movies of today. It's a movie that plays to both adult and child viewers Children won't understand the plot. I didn't for a long time. It's interesting that they're on British TV. It's hardly ever shown. I can't remember the last time I saw it on TV here, which is odd when other Touchstone movies like Hocus Pocus and Splash seem to be on at least once a year. Almost as if they're not really sure when to put it on or whether it's a movie for adults or for children. I don't know. I don't make the rules when it comes to TV schedules. Maybe it has been on and I've just not seen it, but... It's certainly, if it was on TV, it's certainly something that I would look out for. Um, interesting fact, though, the movie's title is formed as a question, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? But with no question mark at the end. Uh, this is because apparently a question mark in the title of your movie is bad luck. Um, or they want to make a statement. I'm not sure. Uh, anyway, Disney released it under the Touchstone Pictures brand, which also includes movies like Hocus Pocus, Splash, Three Men and a Baby, Pretty Woman, Sister Act... The list goes on and on. Who Framed Roger Rabbit opened in the US on June the 22nd, 1988 to $11.2 million and went on to make almost $330 million worldwide. It was the second highest grossing movie in 1988 after Rain Man. It ended up costing $70 million um, and it was nominated for six Academy Awards and won three. It also won a Special Achievement Award for animation direction and creation of the cartoon characters. Controversies over certain scenes in the movie have been well reported, such as frames where Jessica appears to be wearing no underwear as she's flung from Benny the Cab, something that's been rectified on newer releases of the movie so that she actually is shown wearing underwear. Additionally, scenes with baby Herman emerging from under a woman's skirt with drool on his lip have also been removed. Additionally, the movie doesn't hold all that well for its racist undertones, especially when Eddie speaks to the gorilla bouncer and uses words that might be seen nowadays as racial slurs. Interestingly, it was one of the last American summer films that was held back for a UK Christmas release, something that also happened with Jaws, Star Wars, Ghostbusters and E.T. And I'd like to thank Jeff from At The Flicks podcast for that little tidbit of information. Now, I want to talk a little bit about Jessica Rabbit because, as previously mentioned, this is, in essence, a children's movie. And yet this is a highly sexualised character with unrealistic proportions and very typical of how women were drawn, with big busts, small waists and large hips. 
And let me tell you, a woman of those proportions, if she was actually alive, probably wouldn't even be able to hold up her own head. But anyway, it's worth noting as well that this movie contains zero CGI. It kind of didn't exist in 1988. The scenes at the club with her sparkling red dress, that was all hand animated. It's stunning. It's gorgeous. The movie doesn't do a lot with Jessica. However, what it does do is show a woman who knows her own sexuality and also a woman who subverts the trope of the scorned wife, the sexy club singer, etc. The movie makes it clear that Roger adores his wife and can't believe that she would cheat on him. But it also reinforces that Jessica similarly adores her husband. She's an incredibly loving and faithful wife to Roger. She mentions to Eddie she would do anything for her husband. Jessica is by no means what we call a good role model. And yet actually she is. There's nothing wrong with being sexy. There's nothing wrong with her using her sexuality as part of her onstage performance. She's a singer. Singers are supposed to perform. She posed for pictures because her husband's career was threatened. As a woman in this world that she lives in, she's constantly judged as just being a sex bomb. As she herself puts it. You've got the wrong idea about me, Mr. Valiant. I'm a pawn in this, just like Roger. Can you help me find him? Just name your price and I'll pay it. Yeah, I bet you would. You've got to have the rabbit to make the scam work. No, no, no. I love my husband. You've got me all wrong. You don't know how hard it is being a woman looking the way I do. Yeah, well, you don't know how hard it is being a man looking at a woman looking the way you do. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. As a society, we assume things about women who are attractive, who work in certain careers, who use their sexuality for their own means, and, and really, who are we to judge Jessica, or anyone for that matter? I find alternative casting super interesting, and in this case, Harrison Ford was actually the first choice for Eddie, but he was too expensive. Uh, Bill Murray was also considered, but his method of receiving roles is a little unorthodox, so he missed out and was apparently very disappointed. Tim Curry was considered for Judge Doom, but producers thought he was too scary. I mean, could Judge Doom be any scarier? And so, what is the legacy of this movie? Well, it's one of the most ambitious projects to ever hit cinema screens, and it'll never, ever be repeated. A sequel has been talked about for years, but has failed to materialise. A prequel entitled Roger Rabbit 2 The Tomb Platoon was planned for 1989. It was originally, it was supposed to be set in 1941. The script had Roger expose the manager of the radio station that Jessica worked at as a Nazi spy. However, having made Schindler's List, Spielberg rejected making a film with cartoonist Nazis in it. Another called Who Discovered Roger Rabbit was written in 1994 and focused on Roger looking for his mother during the Great Depression. Alan Menken volunteered to serve as executive producer and wrote five songs for what was conceived as a parody of classic Hollywood musicals. Walt Disney Pictures was planning to create this with computer animation, but Michael Eisner pulled the project in 1999 when the budget rose to over $100 million, believing that a prequel to a film made 12 years before would not be successful. 
in 2011, Bob Hoskins said that he would never return to play Eddie Valiant, but he later changed his mind. However, in 2012, he retired from acting due to a long battle with Parkinson's and he died from those complications in 2014. For me, his role as Eddie Valiant is one of my favourites that he's ever done. He perfectly encapsulates the everyman, the underdog, the hero of the piece, uh, a man in dark depression who finds not only the tune who murdered his brother, but also the, his love of life back, his love of laughter and just generally love in general, I guess. <laughs> Roger is his name. Laughter is his cane. Come on, you dope. I'm tired, bro, but watch him go insane. <laughs> He's lost his mind. I don't think so. <laughs> this singing ain't my line. It's tough to make a rhyme. If I get stuck, I'm... I'm out of luck. I'm, uh, I'm running out of time. Thanks. make you smile i hope so it makes me smile so in 2016 the film was selected for preservation in the united states national film registry by the library of congress as being culturally historically or aesthetically significant who framed roger rabbit is widely regarded as not only one of the greatest movies of the 80s but also one of the most beloved movies of all time its appeal spans generations and its alternative period setting makes it timeless it became the forefront of the modern era of animation and it made stars of Roger and Jessica, as well as reinvigorating interest in the likes of Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck and the other tunes that are featured in the film. It bolsters Disney's belief in animation and heralded the Disney Renaissance, of which we got classics like The Little Mermaid, The Lion King, Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, you name it. It's simply a miracle, a game changer, something that will never be repeated. A similar movie called Cool World came out in 1992, starring Kim Basinger, Gabriel Byrne and Brad Pitt. It attempted the same generic setup, a human man ends up in a cartoon world with a sexy femme fatale. It attempted, attempted to ump the sexiness and included scenes of humans and cartoons having sex, as if that's a good selling point for your movie. Anyway, it failed to set the box office alight and it's never really spoken about. That's not a bad thing. Robert Zemeckis would, of course, go on to make the incredibly brilliant Back to the Future sequels and other classics like Death Becomes Her, Forrest Gump, The Polar Express and most recently 2018's Welcome to Marwen. 
He's become a director who's synonymous with pioneering certain types of special effects. And honestly, the world would be a lesser place without his movies in them. Were it released today, I doubt it would have the same technological or cultural impact. We live in a world where CGI can make any dream a reality. Nostalgia-wise, the only movies in recent years that I think have come close to encapsulating the same feelings as Roger Rabbit are probably Wreck-It Ralph, its sequel Ralph Breaks the Internet, and another Spielberg movie, Ready Player One. Uh, All of those movies rely on incorporating known brands or characters into the movies and both relied on lucrative and complicated licensing. I don't think either of those examples will be so fondly remembered in 31 years' time, though. Who Framed Roger Rabbit was bright, it was dark, it was funny and serious and complicated and sexy, and and it was never the safe bet. And Have I mentioned it's a miracle? Thank you for listening to Verbal Diorama. I hope that you enjoyed this episode on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I hope that you've learned something new about Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And as always, you can follow me on social media and share your thoughts, experience, love, hatred of Roger Rabbit or of any movie that I talk about because, you know, I love to talk. Um, You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram or Letterboxd at Verbal Diorama. And yeah, I will see you all next time for the next one. Bye. So, I thought this would actually be a long episode. It turned out that it actually wasn't very long. Um, I think in my head, uh, I had a lot to say um, and I had a lot of notes. And yeah, it turns out that it actually is about the same length as all the other ones. So, not quite sure what happened there. Um, Anyway, thanks for listening. Bye.